Welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. My name is Christine Murray, founding editor-in-chief of The Developer and director of the Festival of Place. Our ambition is to break down silos and bring people together to unpick what makes places that thrive. Today I'm talking about sites left over after planning, or slopes. We've all seen them on housing estates in the UK, these corridors of tarmac or fenced-in scraps of grass, as we focus on the retrofit and housing intensification of council estates. Shouldn't we also be retrofitting the communal and public spaces? What is the collective potential of this mosaic of pieces of land for social and environmental gain? We could use them for biodiversity, for food growing, or flood resilience. That's the argument of two former winners of our awards, the Pineapples. So I'm Date from Eco-Responsive Environments and Valerie Bairn of Where Pathways Meet. Want to put slopes, literally, on the map. They're here to ask you to help them. So hi, so and welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and about these sites left over after planning that you've been thinking about. First of all, thanks for doing this podcast with us. Um, so just a bit about myself. I'm uh, Soham Day, um, co-director, founder of um, a design practice called Eco-Responsive Environments. Uh, we are based in South London uh, and uh, we've like ourselves and Val, we both have um, won Pineapple Awards uh, uh, with you, Christine. And uh, and just a a bit bit more on on our practice, Uh, we've been writing this book by the same name called Eco-Responsive Environments, uh, and it is, uh, you know, to be uh, published in summer next year. Um, And the book is actually about, uh, you know, it's it's a manual for designing, Sort of safe and just space uh, for the future. Um, so, well, in that context, <laughs> um, we've been working uh, on on a public realm regeneration uh, in uh, one of uh, social housing estates in located in Tower Hamlets. And uh, whilst working in that project, um, we realised that um, there's so much of leftovers open spaces between buildings within just within Tower Hamlets that um, are not really thought about with meaningful purpose. Um, And also when we were engaged in into the sort of design project, the main aim was to um, intensify um, the site uh, via rooftop extension and other infill developments. but that being the main aim of such projects, the improvements to the landscape and public realm was has not necessarily been in the forefront. Um, and what we realised that um, a lot of these open spaces that we, you know, then found just walking around the council, uh, that these open spaces are mainly primarily been designed as defensible open spaces and no other sort of um, function to it. Uh, and therefore, um, these spaces are not really used much, not just that, because because of their layout and current existing configuration, they do not even have easy access to them. Uh, and due to such reasons, um, they're not much used, 
sometimes they go to dereliction and all of that eventually leads to antisocial behavior. Um, in a way that kind of uh, reflecting on that, uh, it, it feels like there's a lot of open spaces which are inefficient, which is not really used, and people are paying for it through management fees um, uh, just to cut the sort of keeping, trimming the grass in the lawn uh, without much purpose to it. Whereas there's a lot of community needs uh, from uh, the existing communities, not just the existing ones. Also, they're very much wary of what would happen if there are new residents coming in and there are not much enough spaces that they have um, uh, to conduct their sort of, you know, day-to-day -day social interactions. Um, and just to give an idea, we did a very sort of, you know, quick desktop research on it. Uh, we found there's almost like 30 to 40% uh, of open spaces uh, that are left uh, in between, you know, such buildings and in, in such uh, housing estates. Uh, and that's, you know, to say that it's quite, quite a big amount of open spaces that are not really being used. And, you know, just to give an analogy in terms of the quantum, one of the, I just did a very quick, you know, rough calculation. Uh, you know, that 30% may sometimes add up to the size of a football pitch. So it's it's quite big, uh, although it does not really uh, seem that way because they are fragmented. Um, so w w what we are trying to say here, there is a, there's some big opportunity uh, for someone to look in, sort of into uh, in, in terms of improving uh, the efficiency of such uh, sort of leftover land for productive, multi-generational, social and environmental uses, um, which I think, you know, Val, we had a discussion with Val about it, uh, you know, owing to our experience in working in, in sort of such projects and, and Val being an experienced landscape architect, uh, where we sort of, you know, the discussion uh, kept going towards how can we you know, find ways of uh, retrofitting uh, such uh, green open spaces in social housing estates. So great time to bring you in. Valerie, tell us a little bit about your experience. You've been on the podcast before talking about the low-line commons, um, and you have this experience of uh, enriching these spaces, these leftover spaces, but usually you've been working on on roads or pieces of infrastructure or <laughs> pathways so uh so uh, it would be great for to hear from you and and introduce your your work and experience and how you connected with them so em about this project oh thanks christine and yeah thank you for very much for having us on on your podcast again um so yeah so i'm valerie byrne and i am the founder of where pathways meet um which is a placemaking and regeneration consultancy um, I'm a regeneration specialist and a landscape architect, um, and I'm particularly interested in the, you know, in residual, what I call residual urban spaces. So those sort of bits of the city that are kind of forgotten about and, you know, the spaces between the buildings um, that often kind of get overlooked when, um, when investments are being made. And I'm really sort of interested in how these sorts of spaces can work harder to support um, you know, greater ecological and environmental um, resilience, how they can support like civic life and social interaction and how they can support, you know, economic activity and prosperity locally. So, um, so as you mentioned, I've done I've, my background. Um, 
up until now I've worked a lot in kind of the public realm in terms of on on streets and um and you know the kind of highway spaces between buildings and I think what's been really interesting um what's interesting about this discussion I feel like over the last 10 to 15 years there's been a real sort of dial shift in how um you know highways are now sort of being designed and considered um you know to work a lot more hard a lot harder uh in terms of supporting kind of that um that environmental resilience like there's so much kind of retrofit of sustainable drainage of urban greening into those sorts of spaces um and i really feel like that there's a, a critical mass of of progress kind of in in going in the right direction um when you see like projects like the the pedestrianization of the strand and the west end project kind of happening in central london so i feel like there's so much really positive uh, work happening on on the highways bits between the buildings but on on housing land it's really interesting kind of the spaces around the, the buildings that are often kind of overlooked and and you know it's yeah like just from the the conversations that we we had um so and his his partner prachi and myself you know we were just talking about how so much kind of thought is going into the retrofit of some of the buildings on on housing estates or intensifying them um but often the opportunities to kind of weave in those external spaces into retrofitting them to you know to be more uh, resilient is is being overlooked i think one thing you know that strikes me is I, we've all seen these spaces you walk through the housing estate there's a little square of grass there's like a tiny section surrounded by a little mini fence that somebody mows at some point or blows leaves on and maybe there's even slight paved areas in in back streets etc they're kind of conceived as too small to do anything useful with they're not big enough to put a community center or you know a, a, any additional homes on they don't go anywhere or lead anywhere they're perhaps you know seem to you know not overlooked enough or too scary to put a playground in um so so what i'm hearing is we have a bit of a lack of imagination it actually ends up to quite a lot of land like so em what are you thinking is the potential of these spaces what what could we unlock or do with some of these you know kind of useless i suppose or perceived as useless bits of ground i think uh, what he just uh, mentioned is um, is very important and uh, very important for us to um, understand uh, the qualitative and quantitative aspects of of uh, such spaces to give an understanding of how these spaces currently exist so these leftover open spaces were as i mentioned earlier they were primarily designed as uh, defensible open spaces, which basically means uh, the ground floor units of such uh, housing estates do not have direct access from the street, uh, rather they have a communal entrance with a sort of internal uh, shared corridor from where they have entrances. Now, what that means in turn is um, for these um, uh, ground floor residents who are, you know, in terms of distance, they're the closest, uh, uh, you know, to to get access to those open spaces, uh, but they can't get easy access to those open spaces because they do not have any front door or or, or rare entrance uh, to such, you know, um, 
to such open spaces to make convert them into sort of sensible leisure or, or back garden amenity um, and due to its convoluted um, access it limits the use of such spaces and therefore no one ends up using them having said that um, there's definitely a way to fix those um, uh, one could look at uh, how uh, the, the internal layouts of those ground floor units currently exist and if is there a way can you know if we can introduce or or widen up uh, an existing window in in a living room into a door or something that i'm sure there are ways that one can look at but uh, in terms of i think what you mentioned uh, in terms of size i think is a, is a very important one is uh, there there are open spaces of various sizes uh, and other qualities which uh, put, put in together can uh, lead to uh, certain type of interventions and i think uh, when we you know we were having this discussion with bao um, is we can almost generate a menu of potential um, sort of improvement strategies uh, that could pertain to you know uh, different sizes and qualities of existing open spaces say for example if there is an open space uh, which used to be, uh, uh, you know, which is currently, let's say, a hard standing uh, pavement just to get access to your parking yard can easily be, you know, converted into something like a rain garden or, or, or maybe a sort of a linear swale. Or if there is a smaller square patch could be, you know, uh, transformed into something like a, you know, little mini pond. So. What I'm trying to say is that there are different scales of spaces that could act as a patch of green or a corridor of green space um, with other uh, parameters of um, productive uses. So we could have suds, we can have, you know, opportunities to generate food security, patches yeah. of biodiversity. But what Absolutely. are the so first we need to see these spaces we need to kind of acknowledge that they're there they need to become you know part of the visioning process i guess val you you've worked with the low line there was a lot of stitching together of different yeah. owners and different patches and pieces and i'm going to guess that there's an issue here of identifying the ownership of the land who's responsible for it and how do you kind of get them working together. And, you know, I, I guess we assume that these are all owned by the council or managed by the council or managed by somebody, but it, is that is that one challenge we're going to have to overcome? It's, it's worth kind of acknowledging that there are like really great examples out there of where, um, you know, retrofit has, has happened successfully on housing land, but it kind of feels like it's the exception um, and it needs really to be the norm in, in the context of, you know, climate, um, the climate emergency and the ecological emergency. So, um, you know, so there, there, ha there is good practice out there. I think this idea of um, identifying what your potential blockers might be. And so I'm, you've probably given this some thought, you know, what are the obstacles that we need to overcome, uh, both kind of political or social, but also, you know, actually physical as well to try to unlock this land? Yeah, I think, you know, what Val was, um, you know, 
helping us to sort of uh, put some shed some light on it. Uh, and as she was mentioning, there's been there's existing work being done in terms of highlighting such issues, and uh, uh, you know, and they are of of different there's of different kinds is quite complex uh, as it is multidimensional. Uh, there is definite challenges in terms of funding. Uh, which is, you know, we are always in shortage of funding. Uh, but it's not just the shortage of funding is a problem, but sometimes it's the timing of it. Um, we sometimes within the whole process of project planning, uh, these deadlines sometimes can be a disruptor. And in, in, in terms of, you know, the chase, certain deadlines of funding uh the design process all of you know all of that sort of initial pre-planning processes could be rushed in and may not necessarily result into something you know of a desirable yield um which is you know which is one factor uh, in terms of a challenge there's also uh, challenges in terms of uh, lack of skills uh, for of management uh, and as we were mentioning earlier i mean is is it better just to leave the you know, grass unmowed uh, or or uh, what about understanding uh, you know what's the weeding process use of chemicals um, then there is this whole perception of aesthetics uh, you know residents might say oh, i want my uh, front lawn to be mowed i don't want sort of um, sort of visual clutter in terms of overgrown you know plants and vegetation so i think there's a bit of awareness that you know is lacking at the moment and understanding uh, residents needs um, as well uh, and taking uh, them on board with the design process and making them champions of sort of uh, stewardship uh, I, I we do recognize there is you know there is another challenge for um, resources and uh, putting cost into management but apart from that if if people who uh, can understand that it's their space and they claim it and they manage and look after it and therefore it gets that sort of tlc uh, I, I think that's a bit a lot more cost effective way of looking after such spaces so i think uh, there are definite challenges for uh, you know pre-planning and design bit but i think more than that even if you know a nicely designed planning approved uh, landscape space may go down not so well if it is not kept well so i think um, there are real challenges that we need to sort of look into i think that's where the social innovation is so important uh, the bit of communication and, and upskilling where uh, sort of maintaining even uh, sort of very simple um, productive spaces and keeping them going for more than 10 20 years uh, if you could you know break that bit of a challenge and i think that would be a big um, gain for us valerie are there other people working in this space or you know starting to think about the potential or have there been people who have been you know mapping yeah. these spaces yeah, I think it's been it's been really interesting. I've kind of been been reflecting and, and sort of looking looking back as well as kind of um, kind of seeing what's happening currently. Um, and actually, I was reminded last week I saw a post about um, an exhibition that was hosted at Tate Modern back in two thousand and seven called Global Cities, um, 
And it, one of the projects that it featured was called Edible Estates by an artist called Fritz Haig. And that, uh, that project could, took place in, in a housing estate in, in Bankside where they kind of created an edible community garden within the communal areas. And, you know, it's still kind of flourishing today, which is fantastic, you know, 16 years after, um, after the exhibition. And there's still that sort of community ownership um, through Bankside Open Spaces Trust, who are a fantastic kind of community anchor in that neighbourhood. When we talk about these spaces as not belonging to anyone, uh, as opposed to them, but not, you know, they technically belong to everyone and yet they belong to to no one so i I mean this idea of community ownership and local stewardship seems Mm -hmm. seems essential um but also difficult because you know the the question is if they don't get adopted well who's going to have to look after them yeah Yeah. i think it's a real it's it's a real challenge and there there was another project actually that that springs to mind that was delivered about 10 years ago in in Hammersmith and Fulham and it was um, funded through some EU funding that was focusing on on sort of climate proofing housing estates and it was a really great exemplar of where um, uh, it was a a partnership between Groundwork London which is like an environmental charity and the, the council there in Hammersmith and Fulham and uh, they um, you know, they, they took a, a very holistic approach where they sort of, you know, had a, a community engagement program where they took the community on the journey. They had a skills and training where they got local people into jobs, you know, building the actual, you know, measures on the ground, the, you know, the sustainable drainage, the, the planting. Um, and they had, you know, a really sort of robust monitoring, um, you know, measuring the impact that this project had. And so it was a really great exemplar, but it's, you know, like the question kind of going through my mind is kind of, you know, where has that been scaled up? And, you know, if it hasn't been scaled up, why not? Like, what are the, what are the blockages and, you know, what's, what's needed to kind of make those projects more the norm rather than the exception in the future? And that kind of brings me, I suppose, to, to kind of more recent times where in the last week, um, funnily, the Green Spaces Advisory Board, which is this kind of coalition of um, housing associations kind of convened by a company called Ground Control, who do a lot of external works with those housing associations. They've la- launched the Green Space Stewardship Model, which kind of is a very sort of detailed toolkit on how to go about um, maximizing kind of the uh, opportunities that the kind of green areas on housing estates offer. Um, And it's an incredibly detailed report and it's super exciting that this has been commissioned. Um, But I guess our worry is, you know, what, what next, you know, does it just end up sort of sitting on a website somewhere (laughs) that people can access? How can we really get this embedded um, you know, into local authorities, into housing associations, um, and how can we, you know, really sort of maximise the the opportunity because it's an enormous quantum of opportunity for like retrofitting green infrastructure and for, you know, providing jobs and you know employment for you know for local people that might be you know looking to upskill or um, you know might be unemployed. So it kind of feels you know how how do we move it forward? And I I guess. We're really, you know, we're we're sort of, you know, doing this sort of thought piece in our in our own sort of fields, but like we're really keen to kind of put the, you know, 
cast the net wider and kind of see who's in your network and who's listening to this podcast who might be able to kind of contribute to the to the thinking and the discussion and try and move the the whole thing forward because we're talking about intensifying these you know and building more densely adding homes building more social housing but actually what is the social support in terms of public space to to kind of I don't know, compensate for that intensity or enable it, you know, form these communities and connections. And, you know, is that, was that, was that the primary concern for you, Soam, where you're saying, okay, wait, we're adding floors, we're adding housing units, but what are we actually doing to these public spaces? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, and it's not just only my concern, it's, it's also a planning requirement. Um, but I think the problem with, the retrofit sites is, you know, we don't have that magic button to press to find, uh, suddenly find a new quantum of open space that could be used for, you know, by the community. Uh, so I think that the, the challenge is one, uh, you know, how to improve and enhance existing open spaces, but also to get that sort of claim back that loss of open space uh, within one side boundary, uh, also to identify um, adjacent and uh, nearby sites that may have a bit more of such open spaces and how can we uh, provide uh, amenities in such areas uh, within you know the catchment of uh, the focus area uh, and what are the possibilities so I think um, in terms of you know what we can you know what we were thinking uh, you know it, regarding this topic was again through this podcast if someone who is listening uh if if they have you know own such pieces of land and are doing such regeneration project would for us would be uh, to do a almost take it as a pilot a project to understand uh problems uh, or I should rather say barriers and challenges for for them to achieve what we've been talking about, you know, this evening, uh, and and to unlock those potentials and uh, and how can we enable them to achieve, uh, you know, all, all those desired uh, goals for uh, productive uh, social and making spaces that are uh, climate resilient. It feels like that community engagement piece is a, a real opportunity as well. I mean, we talk about councils continuing to engage the community, but you know, how much can that, you know, how much can, is that about talking or how much is that about, you know, bringing these spaces and community engagement together and like engagement in what would you like to do with these bits of land? I mean, feels quite vital. Um, I'm also struck, I think, um, you know, the low lying commons, like there were pieces of it that were related to an existing piece of infrastructure but there were pieces of it that were basically just signposted so you could follow this this you know <laughs> meandering path and and it, it strikes me too that you know part of this is that these sites are kind of viewed as individual little plots and you almost yeah. need a big idea to stitch them together yeah. and I don't know I don't know what that big idea or unifying thought would be but mm. it's you know it, it strikes me that these are usually low traffic you know can be low traffic areas mm -hmm. can be pedestrianized areas not necessarily knitted up and that wider mm -hmm. network seems like a powerful yeah. thing you know how yeah. much of this is how much of this is connecting them up 
<laughs> I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, initiatives like Incredible Edible, you know, that started in Todd Morden is like a really classic mm. example of where, you know, by just starting out, um, you know, growing, using sort of one or two sort of residual spaces for growing food and for kind of building the momentum behind that. It's it's sort of grown into a, a nationwide, you know, initiative now. Um, and certainly like where I live in Lambeth, there's incredible edible Lambeth. So, you know, so there's just ton, there's so much great practice out there, you know, and it's kind of in a way there's, there's almost a piece of work to do to try and capture or to map, you know, all of those initiatives that are, are happening. And as you say, I think finding some sort of narrative um, to kind of hold it all together, whether that's on a, a sort of, you know, ward level or neighborhood level or borough mm -hmm. level, I think that's all to be, you know, to be explored, I guess. But I think it'd be really interesting to hear from people that are, you know, working in this space and kind of, you know, thinking along the same lines or, you know, delivering projects that we're, that are similar to what we're talking about. So. You know, we're, we're just beginning to kind of scratch the surface, I guess, at this whole topic. And it's, you know, it's been it's really interesting to kind of have this conversation with you and and to kind of, you know, throw the, the net out to see what your, your listeners are thinking and how they can contribute to the, the debate and the thought. So fundamentally, this is retrofitting public space for social yeah. and environmental gain. Yeah. Exactly. I think I think it's public and communal spaces, and I think it, it might be useful to make that distinction uh, uh, again, it, just to avoid uh, that um, ambiguity of uh, you know, what spaces for whom. Um, so I think it is about retrofitting uh, green open spaces for uh, one is you know private communal use and um, also enhancing public realm for public use. Um, and I think the idea we, we were mentioning, uh, Christine, you know that trail. Uh, that you know, sort of mapping of spaces, and also uh, kind of linking that into mental maps of or existing residents and what they feel the space that they can actually use, uh, could be an interesting way to look into uh, uh, enhancement uh, of uh, adjacent spaces that could therefore contribute to the overall um, sort of um, menu of available spaces for people to use. If, mm -hmm. if there are existing shortages of uh, green open spaces within an existing estate. And I'm thinking about ones that I, I mean, they pop into my head as we're talking. I'm walking along the pavement. There's a long stretch of garden slash lawn alongside the edge of a housing estate. It's got a fence around it. It's between the pavement, but there's only windows on the other side. And I'm thinking, is this a private garden? Is this a place there you throw your rubbish over the wall and it just kind of collects in a mm. bush? You know, who plants the roses? You know, who does this actually belong to? Mm. And I guess that signposting is almost about, you know, I'm comfortable with it being their private garden. I'm comfortable with it being a public space, but I don't know what it is. It's just kind of left left over. Has the, de has the thinking around defensible space or you know, ground floor access you know, changed sufficiently. You talked about, you know, so I'm putting doors onto some of these spaces from, you know, going from windows to doors to effectively make them communal or private gardens. I mean, is there still uh, a resistance to to kind of ground floor access or kind of a, a you know, a, a still that, you know, safety by design or secure by design? 
um, well, the, the, I think um, there are, I would say, mixed views about it. Um, there's definite support from residents if, you know, if they get um, uh, a private amenity space that can that they can easily access. Um, but uh, also on the, uh, you know, on the other side, um, the thing is, <laughs> there is a bit of a, what do you call it, a snowball effect, actually. Um, since the, the existing configuration uh, doesn't allow them to have uh, front doors that face the street, which therefore makes the street already inactive, and since it is already inactive, it is not very safe. So therefore, so that whole perception of safety kind of uh, gets back at them and say, okay, if that street is not safe, why would I want to have uh, front doors from that street? So I think that sort of, you know, is a, is a kind of a vicious cycle, which I think um, can be broken, it is, but it needs effective communication uh, and illustration uh of possibilities um with support from um the developers or you know estate managers to show that uh, if that street had uh, direct asset access from the ground floor units which you know can be worked into while looking at the internal layouts and then doing more improvements on that street like let's say put some let's put some more street lighting uh, let's put some more greening rather than you know having some harsh edges so i think uh, you know it's it is probably a slow process maybe we won't be able to do all of those at this you know at one go or maybe there are like little sort of meanwhile use in step one two three and then finally we may end up getting that perfect picture but i think without having that intent it just um does not allow for us to have any change at all. Um, so I think there needs to be that intent and then we can see what steps can be put into place to get to that end. Um, so, uh, because if we did that, it's not only does it makes the street very safe and you know desirable to you know live and et cetera, also makes those defensible spaces more usable, which I think is, is, a, is a big gain. Um, uh, for for the residents. Yeah, and I see what you're saying. You need to support those communities through those transitions. If the street has been unsafe, you need to put in that street lighting or other interventions that can kind of help to 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 support a transition to those to those doorways and to that transformation and have them be part of that conversation. Yes, and uh, and I think uh, uh, I mean. That's why I think this public engagement is so critical, and I think it needs to be just more than um, uh, telling them this is what we are doing. It, 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 that's why when I was mentioning about you know a bit of training exercise, uh, where uh, people also need to know how certain things can make um, you know can create change. Um, so if they are aware. Um, they would probably uh, take a bit more of, you know, uh, sort of from their, their, their from their own intent to create such changes or support uh, such design interventions and changes. Well, certainly this idea of, uh, you know, if these, these are biodiverse spaces, if these are more climate resilient spaces, if these are spaces that promote social connection, inclusion, belonging, and pride, these are 
yeah, these are all huge um, uh, things that can be quantified in terms of, of value. So uh, your call out for information from pilot projects and, um, and other uh, people's in the profession's experience um, may throw up some interesting things for your, for your future um, case studies to include as you continue on this journey. I want to thank you both for bringing, you know, this topic to our attention. We'll be kind of following uh, the continuation of this uh, conversation, but it's been really interesting to kind of spark um, some new thinking about uh, sites left over after planning. Um, so thank you so much, Soem and Val, for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. 